This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. In this podcast, I examine uh, Ken Goodman, Penguins, The Psycholinguistic Guessing Game, Emily Hanford, American Public Media, some flawed ideas about reading instruction, and some flawed ideas about flawed ideas. So, let's get to it. The guessing thing, the psycholinguistic guessing game. In 1967, Ken Goodman published an article in Reading Research Quarterly with the title, Reading, full colon, a psycholinguistic guessing game. Now, eventually, a herd of angry penguins came along. They would read just the title of this article, and obviously, they never read the article, or any other of Ken Goodman's work. From this title, they selected two words to project onto, kind of like a Rorschach inkblot test. The two words were reading and guessing. The Rorschach response from this herd of angry penguins, flapping their wings and squawking about for the last 55 years, has been that whole language teachers teach students to guess at words. 55 years. You'd think that in 55 years since the publication of this article, that these penguins might actually take the time to read the article. And when I say read, I don't mean just sound out the words. Don't do any decoding, but actually read the article. That is, use the text to create meaning with this article. Check for understanding along the way. If this is done, these penguins would soon be disabused of the whole language guessing at words notion. I would invite the angry penguins who think Ken Goodman is the reading Antichrist to actually read his work. What exactly is it that he writes about with which you disagree? Not what you think he wrote, not what someone else said he wrote, but what exactly is it that he got wrong? Now, nobody agrees 100% with anybody, and everybody's thinking evolves over time as more information is encountered. What he wrote in 1967 might be a little different than his later work, 30 plus years later. But he got a lot of things right. So let's look at some of the basics. Some of the basics that Kenneth Goodman pointed out early on that have been subsequently reified by research in psycholinguistics, neuroscience, cognitive science, I have movement and miscue analysis and reading instruction. Here are six things we know based on Kenneth Goodman's work. Number one, humans use the information in their head to make sense of what's on the page during the act of reading. What's in their head? Neuroimaging shows that almost 10 times more information flows from the cortex down to the thalamus during reading, then from the page to the thalamus and up 
to the cortex. Information is flowing down more so than it's flowing up. Number two, we don't attend to every word as we are reading. Eye movement research shows that expert readers ignore about 40% of the words on the page. We skip right over them. Instead, our brain is filling in the blanks based on semantic, syntactic, and phonological clues. We only think we're processing each individual word. Number three, expert readers use minimal letter clues to recognize words. Recognizing words is different from identifying words. Recognizing words is you see a word in print and you automatically know what it is. Identifying words means that you see a word in print it's in your lexicon or the dictionary in your head. You don't automatically recognize it, so you need to use some strategy to identify it. There's four word identification strategies. Analogy, you look for parts that you recognize. Morphemic analysis, prefix, suffix, and root words. Semantic clues, what word makes sense within the sentence, and phonics or phonological clues. These are four strategies that we use. Number four, during reading, our eyes don't move in a straight line from left to right. We skip over words. These skips are called saccades. We stop and focus on some words. The focus points are called fixations. And we often counter words or out of order or go back. These going back things are called regressions. When we read, eye movement research shows that our eyes flitter about like hummingbirds. Five, expert readers often insert words that aren't on the page, but are semantically and syntactically correct. That is, we often use words that aren't on the page, but make sense within the sentence. This tells us that expert readers aren't just sounding out words during reading. We're creating meaning with print. Expert readers don't attend to surface structure of sentences as much as deep structure or meaning. Just like when you're listening, you aren't attending to the individual phonemes. You're hearing phrases and ideas. <clears throat> deep structure. During reading and during listening, your brain is making sense and it's making a series of micro-predictions while simultaneously using metacognition to ensure that what is being read or listened to makes sense. And the sixth idea, our brain has a good sense of what the next word is as we're reading before we encounter it, based on a lot of different types of data. This would be the information found within the sentence and paragraph. This is 
semantic information, the knowledge the reader has about the thing, background knowledge, grammar in word order clues, this is syntax, and letter clues. This multi-data hot dish enables our brain to operate quickly and efficiently during reading. However, if we had to move from left to right, using only letter clues and attending to each and every letter and word in a linear progression, we would overwhelm our short-term memory, we'd remember very little of what we read, and we'd have trouble reading more than 20 words a minute. Now, I wish Kenneth Goodman would not have used the phrase psycholinguistic guessing game. Instead, I wish he would have used the phrase psycholinguistic filling in the blanks with multiple kinds of data before encountering the word game. But this last one doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as psycholinguistic guessing game. Yes, I wish he would have used a different phrase back in 1967, but he had no idea back then that hordes of ill-informed penguins would be so easily whipped into a frenzy by politicians and profiteers. Now let's look at Emily Hanford, American public media, and some flawed ideas about reading instruction. Emily Hanford of American Public Media did a whole series about what she determined to be the flawed ideas being used to teach millions of children to read, millions of children to read. Flawed ideas, she called them. Ideas like balanced literacy and whole language. Ooh, imagine that. She determined them to be flawed. Now, I'm sure Emily Hanford is a wonderful person and a wonderful reporter. I'm sure she creates some very fascinating radio documentaries. If I were putting together a radio documentary, she'd be on the top of my list of experts with whom I might consult. But... For getting accurate information related to reading instruction, she's quite a bit further down the list. To be truthful, she's not even on the list. In fact, she doesn't even know there is a list. Now, here's four things I want to tell you about radio commentators and documentarians. First, Radio commentators and documentarians can say whatever they want as long as they're making good radio. They don't have to cite their sources. They don't have to make sure they're getting an accurate picture. They're making good radio. They can use anecdotal evidence and personal accounts to generalize about things. As long as it's good radio, nobody seems to care. Anecdotal evidence and first-person accounts are very powerful because we identify with the individual people and their stories. This is very powerful, but it's not very accurate. This is sometimes called my grandpa data. My grandpa smoked a pack of cigarettes and lived to be a 100. 
My grandpa did X, therefore X is good for all of humanity. Or the epitome of human evolution argument. Back in the day, I learned to read using X. Therefore, since I am the epitome of human evolution, X must be good. The second idea. Radio commentators and documentarians can ignore anything that doesn't conform to the picture they're trying to create. After all, they're making good radio. So they start with a belief, then go out and look only for data that reinforces that belief. Now, if there's a pesky bit of data that might messy up the picture, they can skip right over it. Who cares? They're making good radio. They can ignore anything they want to and include only what they want to so that they're able to create the picture they want to create. Again, not very accurate, but they're making good radio. The third thing about radio commentators and documentarians is that there's no blind peer review. There's no expert looking at their work and deciding if it's accurate or not. Nobody reviews the methodology behind their work, the methodology used to collect the data and analyze the data. Oh, sure, there might be station managers and producers and such, but they're radio experts, not reading instruction experts. And fourth, if there are experts related to the topic, the radio commentators and documentarians get to select the experts. Non-experts get to determine who the experts are. They get to put the dots on the dot-to-dot -dot picture they're creating. They then connect their dots, ignore a whole bunch of other dots, and proclaim it to be an accurate picture of reality when in reality, it's nothing but a warped dot-to-dot -dot picture with a lot of missing dots. Now, of course, when I contacted American public media after hearing Emily Hanford's documentary, I wanted to describe how incredibly inaccurate the information was that was presented. And I told them how I would be willing to provide an accurate, more, some accurate information. But I was shooed away. Shoo, they said. We talked to experts, they said. Go away, you pesky little man, you. So, the non-experts got to decide who was an expert. Talking to their experts made the non-experts magically become experts. Poof, just like that. However, when Emily Hanford did her expert shopping, she clearly looked for experts who agreed with the picture she was trying to create. Excluding views and voices does not give you an accurate picture of reality. Now, let's look at this podcast. Emily Hanford produces a podcast. But first, Emily Hanford has a degree in English from Amherst College, a small private liberal arts college. Not in education, but English. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
She's now a senior correspondent and producer for APM, American Public Media. She also produces a podcast called Educate. It's about education and such. And there are four things I want to tell you about her podcast. First, it gets many more listeners than my podcast. Therefore, it must be better than mine. I don't have writers, producers, directors, researchers, sound engineers, and such. The second thing, she must know a lot more about reading instruction than I do. After all, she's on the radio and I'm not. Third, she'll never have me on her podcast as a guest. If she does, she'll cut and paste what I say out of context, so I'll sound like a punch-drunk walrus. By the way, I'm hoping she hears this and does have me on as a guest. And the fourth thing, she has much better bumper music than I do. Bumper music is the intro music. It's the bumper between one thing and the next. Hers is much better than mine because I don't have any. I haven't had the time to figure out how to do this with my podcast yet. I've been too busy doing meaningless stuff like scholarly work related to reading instruction. So who should you believe? Emily Hanford has released three document three documentaries investigating what she describes as problematic approaches to reading instruction. Many are inclined to believe her because, after all, she is a senior correspondent and producer. On her LinkedIn page, this is what she writes about herself, and I quote, I've been working in public media for more than two decades as a reporter, producer, editor, news director, and program host. I've been at American Public Media since 2008, where I produce education documentaries that air on public radio stations nationwide and can also be heard on the Educate podcast. I've written and produced for many publications, including NPR, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Washington Monthly, MindShift, and PBS NewsHour. My work has won numerous honors, including a DuPont Columbia Award, a Casey Medal, and awards from the Education Writers Association and the Associated Press. In 2017, I won the Excellence in Media Reporting on Education Research Award from the American Educational Research Associations. I am a frequent speaker and moderator and host of the Ways and Means podcast. I graduated from Amherst College and live in the Washington, D.C. area, unquote. Wow, very impressive, no? So, who should I believe about reading instruction? One radio reporter investigating something that is clearly outside her area of expertise, using cherry-picked data, including anecdotal evidence, and ignoring data and experts that have views that do not align with their preconceived perceptions. Should I believe her? Or an organization, let's say, like the International Literacy Association? 
the International Literacy Association, has come to a much different conclusion than Emily Hanford. The International Literacy Association is comprised of thousands of expert teachers, researchers, and scholars who've been investigating reading instruction and publishing their findings in blind peer-reviewed journals for over 65 years. Emily is one person, an English major, investigating something outside her area of expertise using dubious sources, but she has won the DuPont Columbia Award or should I believe the International Literacy Association, which is comprised of thousands of experts investigating things within their area of expertise, using a variety of research methods, and publishing their findings in peer-reviewed journals for over 65 years? Which source should I believe? That's a tough one. But, since Emily is good radio, this is the source that will reach parents and lawmakers. After all, all you have to do is listen to Emily. With the International Literacy Association, you actually have to read things. You have to think about things. With radio documentaries, all the thinking is done for you. In the meantime, the only things sillier than Emily Hanford's document documentaries are those people who cite Emily Hanford's documentaries as if they mean something. Now, I'm sure Emily Hanford made a, a name for herself, which I guess is the important thing here. I'm sure her documentary series about flawed reading instruction ideas has moved her career forward be it at the expense of children struggling to learn to read, but at least she got her three-part documentary series on NPR, which is the important thing. This radio documentary, even though it was filled with mistruths, untruths, semi-truths, and distorted information, was a good career for her. So good for you, Emily Hanford. Now, I don't mean to be dumping all over Emily Hanford. I know she's a very competent person. I'm sure she's a very good person. I imagine she wakes up every day and says to herself, look at you, Emily. Look at all the good things you've done for reading instruction and for children. However, documentaries like Emily Hanford's do more to misinform the public and promote bad reading instruction. As a result of Emily Hanford, millions of dollars and countless hours are spent on programs and curriculum that focus on teaching a series of meaningless low-level reading skills and sub-skills. Time and money could instead be spent on things that would actually help children learn to read, like books, like good teachers, and good professional development. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, an actual reading expert, Dr. Andy Johnson.